Welcome to episode 218 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So I've, I think there's only like so many ways that we can do this intro or change the inflection of our voices. And I felt particularly convicted about that because in this particular month, so many have posted, you know, there's so many streaming apps, which give kind of like a year in review. And the most famous is Spotify. And there's been several people who have shown that like they've listened to us the most in this year, like something like a crazy number of hours they've spent listening to us. And all I can think about is, do I bring enough variety to that open? Is it interesting enough each time? I have no idea. The answer is no, because we say the same thing every week. <laughs> I've long thought that we probably could just record a standard intro. Yeah. And it would actually save us a lot of time in the long run, but I'm too lazy to do it in the short run. So so we just do the same thing every week. That's fair. It's like that compounding effect. Like it's yeah. only 20 seconds of time that we would save, but you know, you've compound that over again. What is this? 218 episodes. There yeah. is some savings that's actually material when it's you look true. at it that way. But I was thinking about that because there's been a couple of people, I think in our Facebook group who have posted that for whatever reason that they have listened to us the most this year. And it was literally like thousands of hours. It was just crazy. And I was just like, Oh my goodness. That is incredible. So I can't even like remember the things we said two weeks ago, let alone let's say like episode 89. Yeah. What even happened on that episode? Somebody messaged me once and was like, said something about your denial from like a week ago. And I was like, I don't even remember what he said. I don't even remember what it was. I don't, I don't know. It's just how it goes. And this is one of those things where you don't realize this until your voice is recorded for posterity's sake. So if you think about like something, you had a conversation with somebody like a week ago and what you said and what you espoused, it's just so hard to come back with that. But imagine that it's actually been preserved and now somebody is reacting to that kind of situation. It's, it's almost like that. We said this, the people that we were in episode two is really honestly not the people that we are now. Yeah, that's not to true. invalidate everything we said, but it's also to say that we were coming from a different place and different perspective at different time. It's just such a funny thing. It's like an audio time capsule and it's so weird to have it opened up by so many other people over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, every once in a while I'll see in our metrics that someone has downloaded episode one and I'm like, oh no, why? No, no, no. Start at like episode 10 or like 11. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say 92. No, like no. It's... Like we figured out most of most of the basic framework by the time we got to episode 10. That's I think true. episode 10 is when we started our systematic theology series. We had a little bit of structure. But like episode one, two, and three, like we didn't even introduce ourselves. We just That's started true. talking. <laughs> That's true. We're like, we hey, Jesse, we how are clever. you? And everyone's like, who the egg is Jesse? <laughs> we thought we were being like novel and unique. Like it's just, you're just coming into a conversation between yeah. two brothers and people are like, I don't even know who this is. So I can't yeah. even appreciate I think it was your mom that was like, yeah, that's actually kind of a stupid idea. <laughs> you should definitely introduce yourselves. I that's think she true. wanted us to be like the car talk guys. Yes. If I remember right. Click and clack. The click and brothers. clack. Yeah. 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 That's some so NPR if, knowledge right there. If you have car questions, go ahead and email us. <laughs> But know that we will not be held liable for damage done to your car based on our advice. Except I do remember that episode where I either affirmed or denied that I couldn't put my own windshield wipers on. And yeah. my wife was the one that actually handled it. That's she true. Did a great job. That's true. 
she was fantastic. I, I want to say too that in speaking of episodes, I noticed there was somebody that's noted in the Facebook group as well. And this cracks me up. We we actually caused like some kind of Reform Brotherhood episode inception because they were going through the back catalog and we have an episode somewhere in that catalog titled In Christ. And then we just most recently did one that was more specifically focused, focused on the spirit and being in Christ. And this person just happened to have listened to the old In Christ episode. Oh, and the new episode was also titled In Christ. And I thought that is providential timing for that person. It is. It's true. Yeah. Well, we should, speaking of providential timing, we should probably get started with our episode. <laughs> so Jesse, why don't you hit me with an affirmation? Okay. So keeping with our normal customs to bring some routine back to this episode, this week I'm affirming with watching things that you've already seen before, because sometimes, not always, but once in a while, you find that thing where when you watch it again, it's like lasagna in that it's actually better when you reheat it for the second time. And the thing that I'm referring to is the Mandalorian. I know oh, that man. it just, it just ended. Do, do, but do, 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 do. Yeah, it just ended and we watched the final episode and it's fantastic. No spoilers. But then we decided let's go back and immediately start rewatching it. And it's actually, I said to my wife as we were rewatching it, this is almost better the second time because dun, I was dun, so dun, concerned dun, the first time about trying to understand things that now as I'm watching it the second time and I understand, did I say it the second time twice? Now that I am watching it the second time and I don't have to worry about trying to grasp the overarching plot, I'm just appreciating like the cinematography and the storyline and the narrative telling. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of like it's a sub affirmation that you should watch things again, but watch like the Mandalorian again because it's super entertaining the second time around. Yeah. It's like reheating lasagna. So good. Once you pull it out of the microwave. Yeah. I mean, we could nerd out over how brilliant the Mandalorian is and how, how John Favreau is basically like reverse engineering the entire Star Wars universe yes. with this show. Just pretty phenomenal. He's, he's doing exactly what he did with Iron Man where he's, but he's doing it like retroactively. He's, he's building an entire that. universe but he's like filling in all the gaps now of a universe that was sort of already there. Just So do awesome. you think that's his jam? Like, do you think that's what he's good at? I mean, he was also, he also directed Elf. So I think he's just a good director. That's what I was so, going to say. Like that's, but that's like there's something that there's something about the fact that he's directed these like disparate things, yeah. which have been, people would attest to in each of those genres that they're pretty substantial accomplishments. Yeah. That must, I mean, I, I never know like how much to give credit to directors because that that's a legit job. Like there's a lot of work there. And yet like you almost are, at least for me, I'm tempted to give more credit to like those who are actually like participating in like the, the acting and all that other stuff. Yeah. But he seems to do an awesome job with the stuff that he touches, yeah. right? Yeah. He's phenomenal. I mean, Iron Man was a total game changer and, um, I think the Mandalorian is a game changer in a lot as a star Wars fan. I'm, I'm not as down on the original prequel trilogy as some people are. And I, I hated rise of Skywalker, but I, or, uh, uh, Last Jedi, but I actually think Rise of Skywalker was a little bit better. And, um, but I think he's doing amazing things to kind of like revitalize and like bring Star Wars back to relevance and to like fix some of the problems that previous, um, previous sequel trilogies may have brought to the forefront. So, uh, but yeah, I, I don't want to do any spoilers. I feel like if we keep talking about Mandalorian, it's going to come out. It's going to come out because I want to talk to you about all the theories I have about stuff. Yeah. So, so well, listen, we're going to catch up and we're going to do that outside of this podcast. But yes. that's kind of my point is 
when I watched it the first time, I felt now in retrospect that I was seeing like 10%. Now I feel like I'm at least 80, maybe 87%. Yeah. And it's just so wonderful. Not to mention the fact that those are like mini movies. Now they see them again. Yeah. They're just so awesome. So watch stuff again. I feel like there's nothing wrong with that, but um, especially The Mandalorian. Like, go back. It's going to be like a year before we get yeah. a whole new season of it. And even that, it's going to be a, it's going to be slightly different. It's going to be a different focus. Right. No spoilers. But um, watch it again. I think it's yeah. it's it's rewatchable. In other words, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, watch rewatchable stuff. That's yeah. Okay. Well, and. And since like 90% of all television is going to be Star Wars spinoffs in the coming years, <laughs> uh, you might want to get on board now because there's not going to be much else to watch. It's going to be like, or from you're gonna, it's kind of like how Marvel movies were for a while yes. where like all there is to go to the theater and watch is Marvel movies. So you either enjoy it or you just don't go to the movies anymore. It's going to be like that. That's what I was going to say, actually, is that isn't there also like something in the future here and offing about all kinds of Marvel stuff, too? Oh, yeah. There's a ton of them. I mean, Disney Plus is like, <laughs> just print your own money at this point. We're going to have to change our currency. It's going to have to be like the Mickey. The Mickey. Yeah. I love that. That's actually pretty brilliant. When's That's... the last time anyone saw Mickey Mouse? The is, Mick. is he okay? Is he doing okay? That costs just to send like a, Oh, he's doing great. Send like a rescue party. No, he's doing great. You mean like, is it, was it like a taken situation? Like, yeah. Is he okay? Like, and, like is, and is, is he like wrapped up in Scientology? What's going on with him? He's a Scientologist. Listen, I would love to get my Mickey's hand going on. Clear. Yeah. I would love to get my hand on Mickey's like O meter readings. Like, what do you think those <laughs> look like? I feel like him and Donald might have some pretty crazy O meter readings. <laughs> yeah. Cause Donald never wears any pants, but he walks out with a towel. And he's angry all the time. Is he? I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah, he is. You can tell when he's really angry because his face turns red. Oh, that's true. So I just got Listen, really serious for a second there. Th here's the thing. This... If you have any information about the whereabouts of Mickey Mouse, <laughs> please contact the FBI. Or, or info at reformbrotherhood.com. <laughs> we would like to know as well. Hashtag save Mickey. <laughs> so here's the thing. I've said this before, but once again, you've done it, Tony. This podcast, this episode, not just the podcast, but this episode, already vastly exceeded my expectations. <laughs> I feel like we might have just accidentally crossed over into the realm of a true crime podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if so, we're about to double our listenership, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. True crime is all the rage. Mugato is so hot these days. So um, that was, a, listen, stop it. Excellent, excellent reference. Excellent reference. We don't even have time. Excellent reference. So in that spirit... What are you affirming? <laughs> I think I'm affirming what just happened. But in all seriousness, um, I've been uh, reading a book that I'm a little late to the game, uh, but I'm reading the Bovink biography by James Eglinton, um, which is phenomenal. And I don't want to go into it too much because I'm hoping to book an interview with him at some point. Oh, um, really? But the book is awesome. And, you know, one of the things my uh, seminary education was primarily in historical theology, actually. And so um, the idea of like rooting a theological movement in the history of what was going on mm -hmm. and looking at a particular figure and understanding that their theology is shaped not necessarily by their experiences, although that's true, but it's shaped in light of their experiences, right? Their theology doesn't develop in a vacuum. Right. Reading this alongside, I've also been reading Wonderful Works of God at the same time, has really enriched uh, my reading of Bob Inc. And it's it's phenomenal. And it's 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 a critical biography, meaning um, it's not just 
hagiography, right? It's not a Ligonier uh, biography. Not that there's anything wrong with Ligonier biographies, Ooh. but they tend to be very rose-colored glasses. Right. They're highlighting the good. They're kind of, at times, overlooking the bad. This doesn't do this, but sometimes biographies like that can be really, really dry, this is not at all. It's Great. full of um, shades and variations. It's full of interesting, fun little stories about Bavink, um, things you wouldn't expect to read in a theologian's biography, like how he was really hung up on this one girl the entire time he was in his early career. <laughs> he he proposed to her like more than one time and just got slapped down every time. Um how he was a single pastor. He was like a young, like a 24 year old pastor in a congregation of basically elderly people. Um, so it really, it really adds a lot to my reading of Bavink. Um, right. And it's just really well written. So pick it up. It's called Bavink. Uh, it's by James Eglinton. And um, it's funny if you listen to the interviews with James Eglinton, he sounds like a really fun guy too. So I'm going to try to book an interview with him. No promises, but um, pick it up. It's good. It's worth every penny. And there's all sorts of fun pictures in the middle. Uh, there's like the portraits uh, and it's funny, you know, there's like the classic Bavink portrait that's at the front of the dogmatics, but they have like a, a picture of him when he was uh, like a, basically like a 19 year old kid. Wait, let and me he's see just this scrawny looking kid. Hold on. I'm going to see if I can do this. Let me see that. Bit. <laughs> so it's, it's funny. Um, it's, it's that just a great. really good book. That is great. So apparently everybody, including Bavink, has that somewhat like embarrassing like yearbook picture, which is basically oh, yeah. what that is right there. Yeah. Speaking, he actually looks a little bit like Donald Duck in this picture. Really? Yeah. It's true. Is he in a towel? Uh, I mean, he might not be wearing pants. <laughs> the fact, He's got the a fact suit jacket you paused, on. So the fact that you paused is so he might be doing. He might be Donald Duck in it. <laughs> is that what we're calling it now? I might be Donald Ducking it. You don't know. Listen, I don't know. That's true. true. Why wear pants when you don't have to? That's also a very an interesting argument for 2020. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love I love uh, biographies that like are a little bit more transparent, or yeah. I guess critical is the right word. I think in particular, what's appealing about that is Bob Anker is one of those guys who he's just so intelligent and so articulate that almost no matter what language you read him in, you're almost like universally just awed by everything he expresses. Yeah. You think like, well, he was like a super serious guy who's like almost like superhuman, not in the sense that like he's outside of transcendent of you know, like personality, but that like he lacks personality probably because he's right. so smart. And so it's lovely to read something like that where you get like a more fully ordered perspective of the person yeah. who's like, you know, had relationships and had problems and also like had a sense of humor. Like yeah. I do like to think that he's probably like a super funny guy. Yeah, probably. I mean, he was really super smart. I mean, I think that the nice thing is like we tend to distill larger than life figures down to like a portrait of their ideals. So right. we think of we think of Bavink as this like super serious intellectual. And he certainly was like you can see in his writing. He's got a very he's very serious about theology. But we we fail to recognize things like the fact that he had to do like a graduation essay and like he got cigars for his birthday one year that he was really excited about. Or he proposed to this girl named Amelia who turned him down and like, um, you know, like his friend, his friend uh, from college died. And that really, really like devastated him. And he like mm -hmm. he like stopped lecturing for a while because he was so devastated. So it's it's really nice to read these and get past some of the hagiography that, that happens in some other biographies right. and really start to see these people for the people they are. It was encouraging for me because there's, he writes in his journal a lot about, you know, he went to Leiden, which is this really super 
um, progressive modernist university. And he comes from a very, very conservative seceder background. And his goal, uh, and this is, you know, this has actually kind of more recently come out in Eglinton's work. His goal was to go to Leiden, establish himself, prove that he's competent and capable, make inroads into that world, and then spread good confessional theology there. And he did that. Right. But what we, you don't think about when you do that, you think, oh, Bob thinks this is powerhouse, of course. You don't see all the journal entries where he's, he's basically pouring himself out into his journal in prayer, praying that God will preserve his faith through this trial how mm-hmm. difficult it was. Um, you know, he, one of the big things was that this school had like a big rager at the beginning of the year where everybody like, they try to drink as much alcohol as they can and get as crazy as they can because they're not going to be able to do that during the rest of the year. Or they're going to fail out of school. Well, right. Bob Inc. basically like committed social suicide by not going to this big rager, but he really felt it was important. So it's, um, it's really interesting to read. It's really encouraging to see that, you know, the, the larger than life figures, the giants of the faith, like they were just guys and they just, they just had the same struggles and the same difficulties that, um, we do, you know, col- college doesn't ever really change. Like people, people drank too much in college, uh, in, you know, the 1880s and they did in the 1980s. Um, people wrote crazy exam essays called nobody helped me on this essay and, and still pass their courses. Like that kind of stuff is, is almost universal. And it, it's kind of right. nice to see that when you're looking at figures of the past. Right. And speaking of things always moving forward, yet never changing, so once again, you had a wonderful affirmation, read the biography about Bob Inc. And I was like, hey, maybe you should watch The Mandalorian for a second time. That's, <laughs> That's a good fine. use. Yeah, but then I was all geeked resources. out about The Mandalorian. Uh, I appreciate that, but we'll take it. And I believe that you and I have a shared or mutual denial we for do. this episode. This, this episode is all denial all the time. So <laughs> this time of year, right, we affectionately call it uh, Midwinter No Reason. Uh, the rest of the world knows it as Christmas. Uh, there's a particular figure, and I say figure, I didn't mean the pun there, but it's true. Ooh, there's nice. a particular figure that is much more prominent this time of year for good reason, uh, and that's Mary. And so you see these little statues of Mary all, all over the place. You see she's on greeting cards. You know, she's, there's, we sing songs about Mary. Mary, did you know, right? You know, we sing songs about this. And um, I thought it would be nice to... Talk about how bad the Roman Catholic Church has screwed everything up in relation to Mary. So I'm denying uh, Mariolatry and I'm denying the nonsense. Uh, yes. I've, I've learned if you really want to anger, and we'll talk about why if you really want to anger a Roman Catholic, you tell them that if Mary knew what they were teaching, that she'd be spinning in her grave. Mm. They just hate that. And it's it's probably the unsanctified part of me that really loves saying that to the Catholics, but... Um, it's true. It really drives them crazy. We'll talk about why. Yeah, I love this. I'm with you in this, and it's our denial. I, I like that you just came like straight out of the gate oh, yeah. hard on that. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> that was so good. Unless anybody think that this is like merely the kind of like armchair theology where you're just kind of sitting back and pontificating on things that mostly don't matter or, t- or totally esoteric. I was just saying, we were just talking about before we started recording, how in the neighborhood that I run in, I can tell the who is Catholic because me, some people have these Mary statues. I'm calling like this like the bullet Mary. It's the Mary that's like in like kind of this bullet shaped like enclosure. She's there as a statue with her arms like extended or open. And um, so this this is not yet yeah, exactly Tony's modeling it, but nobody can see it. He looked great. He looked <laughs> he looked almost Mary like. 
And, but the thing is like, there is something to this. So in other words, like this is the conception, the ideology, the person surrounding Mary is very particular and is part and parcel for a particular type of worship. And I think that's where we're going to start to go is trying to understand where we've gone wrong. And I hope, and I think in this conversation, we'll also hopefully end up on, well, what is like the proper perspective? How do we approach Mary? And this type of year is more just like a lightning rod for that, because even the song itself, like we've talked in episodes before, the Mary, did you know? Yes, absolutely. You know, obviously not entirely, but with some nuance, yes, everything that was happening there. So it's kind of like a funny song in that way. But the question is how much, let me say it this way, how much credit do we give to Mary and does Mary deserve some kind of like extra space, extra resonance, extra relationship that uh, we ought to give to her as we understand her role in, honestly, like salvation itself? So let's just start, I guess, I think where you want to start is like, let's start with like, is it fair to place ourselves in the position of what does the Roman Catholic Church ascribe to Mary and why is she given preeminence or a special position? Is that a good place to start? Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to, um, you know, we're all about calling out other podcasts and, and providing you with other resources that are good. There's a podcast called the Reformanda Initiative, and I'm not 100% sure exactly how this organization came to be or or how they get funding. But basically, it's Protestants that live in Rome that are trying to evangelize Roman Catholics. Um, and so they, they produce this podcast that kind of analyzes and critiques and talks about Roman Catholic theology. So they've done a really good couple of episodes on, on Mary. And one of the points that I think they make that's really important, um, I think sometimes Protestants have this concept, maybe not most of our listeners. I think our listeners probably are a little bit more keyed into the differences. But sometimes, and actually I think Roman Catholics think this way, Sometimes people think the the difference between reform or reformed Protestantism and Roman Catholicism is like the core is the same, and then like there's some things on the uh, like the periphery that are a little bit different. Like yeah, we have they right. have a pope, and we don't we don't have a pope, and they have a few more books in their Bible. We don't you know we don't recognize the apocrypha. They 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 really like Mary, and we you know we think Mary is just okay. Like there's these different perspectives, <laughs> but when you actually understand the way that the theology works. The way that they relate to Mary is absolutely central to Roman Catholic thought. Yeah, right. You can't take Mary and just pull her out of the equation and basically still have a, you know, the whole system actually falls apart. Mm-hmm. And and so it's important, you know, you talk about like papal infallibility and you talk about dogma. Dogma in Roman Catholic theology has a very technical, particular meaning. And a dogma in Roman Catholic theology is something that the church has ruled on, that the Pope has spoken in, you know, infallibly on, and that it is binding for all Roman Catholic, all Christians, all who are under the authority of the Pope to believe, otherwise they are de facto not Roman Catholic. Right. So when exactly. you meet a Roman Catholic and you say something like, well, I just think it's, I just think it's wrong that, um, you think that the body, the, the, that piece of bread actually transforms into a human body and they go, yeah, well, I don't really believe that either. What they're actually saying is I'm not actually Roman Catholic right. because transubstantiation is a, is a dogma. Right. And one of the things that most people don't recognize is that the first formal dogmas that were proclaimed by a Pope after the Roman Catholic church clarified what ex cathedra authoritative papal speech was, 
were the so-called Marian dogmas. And there are three Marian dogmas, and then most of them recognize a fourth that falls in a little bit of a different category. So the, the main dogmas that they recognize, they recognize the perpetual virginity of Mary. Yep. And I'm just going to run through them. We'll talk about each of them in turn here. The, the idea that Mary not only was a virgin when Christ was conceived and a virgin when Christ was born, but that even after that, she never had marital relations with Joseph, that, that they right. had a, a celibate marriage, that she had no other children. Um, and there's a particular reason that they believe this. The second is the immaculate conception with which a lot of Protestants think refers to Jesus being conceived immaculately of the Virgin Mary, but it actually refers to the fact that Mary herself was conceived in a way where she did not have original sin transmitted to her, right? right. Immaculate is just the it's the transliterated version of the Latin phrase to mean sinless. And then uh, the assumption of Mary. And that is basically that Mary... There's some disagreement among Roman Catholics whether she died and then was bodily assumed, was resurrected and bodily assumed into heaven, or whether she never died and was just assumed into heaven, kind of like Enoch style or Elijah style, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things, just just to point out right off the bat, right off the, the the bat here, all of those things are properly speaking characteristics of Christ that they've right. All extended, right? We affirm not because virginity is is sinful or is sinlessness. It's not that we affirm Jesus was a virgin because somehow sex is sinful in the context of marriage, and so Jesus couldn't do that. We affirm the perpetual virginity of Jesus because we affirm the perpetual sinlessness of Jesus. Right. And so this this idea, this characteristic of purity, that is that's something that's true of Jesus that the Roman Catholic Church then now extends to Mary. The same is true of the Immaculate Conception. That's why we confuse the fact that Jesus was immaculately conceived, which is true. We think that that's talking about Jesus because we think that refers to the fact that Jesus doesn't have original sin. And then the bodily assumption, obviously, like we, we think about Jesus being raised from the grave and ascending into heaven. The Roman Catholics either say she never died and was and ascended into heaven or she died, but then she was immediately resurrected and ascended into heaven. That right. second view is not very common, but it does exist out there. So all of these things are central to Roman Catholic thought. They're central to what they've done with the system. And there's a number of reasons for it, but I think we'll go through and we'll talk about them. We'll talk about why they don't work biblically. And then I think we'll talk about some of the ways that we can properly as Protestants really kind of honor and, and respect the unique place that Mary has in salvation history. Yes. Um, contrasted with the unhealthy, you know, elevation and, and actual straight up idolatry that the Roman Catholic church has kind of foisted upon Mary. Yeah, that's a great starting point because like my point in bringing up the prevalence of like, for instance, like statues of Mary, I just find that as an observation interesting because right. you're not seeing statues of Jesus or Joseph or anybody or Paul or anybody else, but Mary. So we need to understand what is special about Mary and particularly to those who ascribe to like the Roman Catholic view that have given her a special preeminence in their theology. And so I'm glad you started there because those dogmas, I think, shape those from those dogmas become come out of all these outworkings of that like essential focus. So let me quote something else. And then I think this will help us like to see both the starting point and the ending point, the result of the dogmas you just referenced. So if I, if you go to, and anybody can look this up, this is the Vatican Collection Volume 1, Vatican Council 2, the conciliar and post-conciliar documents. And I'm actually going to read from uh, pages 420 to 421 to be particular, just so you know that this is actual Catholic documentation. This is paragraph 65. 
And I'm going to quote from this. It's also going to be, uh, I'm going to pull out like several quotes, but to give you like a sense for what is happening in these paragraphs and the outworkings of everything you just said about the dogmas. Because here's where you actually see these start to influence the theology and the behavior and the understanding of the scriptures. So quote, but while in the most blessed virgin, the church has already reached that perfection, whereby she, that is Mary, exists without spot or wrinkle, the faithful still strive to conquer sin and increase in holiness. And so they turn their eyes to Mary, who shines forth to the whole community of the elect as the model of virtues. And when she is the subject of preaching and worship, she prompts the faithful to come to her son. The church, therefore, in her apostolic work too, rightly looks to her who gave birth to Christ. End quote. So you can see how what you just said is not just a matter of, well, here's some interesting principles about Mary that we can kind of just ruminate on and think about. And doesn't that provide some kind of interesting perspective? But this shapes the whole theological perspective and therefore our understanding of salvation and then the outworking of salvation as we work toward obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah and, you know, it's, you know, like I said, my, my primary seminary training was in historical theology. And one of the things that I think is really um, an interesting thesis, I actually don't remember who it was that proposed this, but in the early church, martyrdom was a huge deal, right? It, it, there's a lot of documents which actually sort of treat martyrdom as like an alternative way to salvation. Um, they, they talk about you can either be saved by the blood of Christ or you can be saved by your own blood. Some of those are phrased in sort of ambiguous ways, but there was right. this idea that martyrdom was this special calling. It bestowed special benefits. Well, flash forward to 313, uh, where uh, persecution of Christians is more or less outlawed, the Edict of Milan, and then flash forward another you know, 15 years, and Constantine has now basically made the Roman Empire a Christian empire, more or less. Um, martyrdom was now really no longer a thing for the most part. And so what happens is in the history of the church, the new sacrifice that people make, the sort of uh, special sauce sacrifice, it used to be giving your life for the faith. Now it's virginity. And right. so the church starts to elevate virginity as this special calling and special vocation that conveys special spiritual benefits. Now, this started primarily in popular uh, religion. It was, it was a grassroots movement. Um, and then the church eventually adopted it. Well, who better to exemplify virginity than the Virgin Mary? And so what we start to see during this time period, we start to see things like, uh, I think that this, this document was much earlier, but we start to see documents like the Proto-Evangelion uh, Proto of James, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's this document that was written well after the time of the apostles that purports to be this document written by James. Uh, the, the half-brother of Jesus, right? Well, the Roman Catholics don't actually think he's the half-brother of Jesus. He's kind of a step-brother of Jesus, but it's purported to be written by James, and he records this, this account where Mary's actually like a temple virgin. She's brought right. to the temple at a young age. She's raised in the temple, and then she receives this special calling, and in order to facilitate this special calling, she marries this elder widow who already had all these sons and daughters named Joseph. And so she ends up being kind of like a, like a housemate of Joseph. Joseph helps her raise Jesus, but, but they never, they're not, they don't have really a marriage. They're, they're almost like roommates that are married right. to each other. Um, and so this kind of popular literature, kind of like, um, like early church fan fiction is what it turns out to be. 
it sort of creates this cult function around Mary, where she's the ideal woman. She's the ideal Christian. Uh, she starts to represent the church as a whole. And so this, this starts to foster this popular religion centering around Mary that then later on, uh, not right away, but later on the church picks up. And this actually leads to that sort of fourth, uh, fourth dogma that sits in this different category. And we've talked about this on this show before. It's the dogma of the Theotokos. Right. And so, uh, if you remember when we talked about Nestorianism, Nestorius is this monk who objects to the calling Mary, the mother of God on Christological grounds. And he wants to say, Mary is, um, is the mother of the human nature of Christ, but not, not the person. She's not, she's not the mother of God because God can't have a mother. And so this, this then kind of comes to the front in the council of Ephesus, Ephesus, I'm stuck on Elf. It's Christmas time. <laughs> it comes to the front in the Council of Ephesus, and Luke on Steady Anchor just did a fabulous episode on this. And then it comes again at, at Chalcedon. That's where we get the definition of Chalcedon. Right. And so Roman Catholics now, and I, this, if you don't believe that this is happening, I'm looking at an article on the Catholic News Agency, which, to be fair, is not official, formal Roman Catholic teaching, but it is a relatively authoritative source. And if the Pope said, or any authority in Roman Catholic theology said, that's not right, take it down, they would. They actually call this the divine motherhood of Mary. Mm -hmm. And so what they've done is they've taken the Council of Ephesus or the Council of Chalcedon, those findings, which are about Jesus, right? They were always about Jesus. The argumentation is about the nature of Christ and the nature of the person that Mary bore. They've now transported that into click, drag and drop, drag and drop onto Mary. And now it's all about Mary. And instead of talking about Jesus and how it's the single person who was born of Mary, it's now Mary's divine motherhood. Mary's motherhood was not divine, right? right? Mary's motherhood had a very unique, miraculous beginning point. But after that, there's nothing abnormal about Mary's motherhood, right? She, she gives birth in a normal way. She carries Jesus to gestation in a normal way. She breastfeeds Jesus, presumably. She gives, you know, all of, all of her motherhood is completely natural once you get past that conception. Mm -hmm. But the Roman Catholic Church, and this is a perfect example of what they do, they take that thing that's about Jesus, and now they've made it all about Mary. Right. And that's, that's the fundamental error of all of these Marian dogmas, is rather than have the focus on Jesus or or the Holy Spirit in a lot of ways, right? Mary becomes the comforter, not the Holy Spirit, right? Right. Mary becomes the queen of heaven, not the father who's the king of heaven. It's Mary who's the queen of heaven, right? All of these things take the attention away from Jesus. And now, now there's this cultist object where literally people worship and venerate the Virgin Mary. They treat right. statues of Mary like, uh, like the ancient Greeks treated statues of Zeus, Right? right. They have to feed her. They have to give her offerings. They have to take her in out of the rain. It's like they've never read the book of Isaiah. And, and it's, <laughs> it's really frustrating. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I think you said it best. This seems to be adventures in missing the point because they begin to ascribe to Mary everything that's rightly due to Christ. Right. And that seems so odd. And you almost want to question, like, how do we even get to this place when the scriptures seem very clear about this? And you know, one of the things that strikes me as against like so many of those dogma dogmas is that all of mankind, like including Mary, requires redemption. So right. there is this principle among the Roman Catholics and often among others that Mary is like this co-redemptrix. Now, the only thing that I have that is somewhat like wants to lean into that is that anything that ends in tricks is a super cool word. word. Like I get that. <laughs> 
like executrix, like that. That's really cool. I get that. But this idea that she is somehow evolved or co-equal in the redemption of God's people because she was the the mother. Uh, however you define that, the mother of Jesus is nowhere to be found in scripture because right. nowhere in scripture are we told to put our eyes upon anyone other than the Lord himself. So that itself, there's some like dissonance that we have to try to make sense with. We're told to fix our eyes on Jesus because he alone is the author and the finisher of our faith. I mean, that's Hebrews 12. And Jesus is the model of virtue, not Mary. So here again, right. it's it's almost like we, I don't know whether we're afraid to go to the son of God himself. And so we somehow take what is properly his and place it on somebody else who we can venerate in some kind of way because it makes it easier for us to do so or more acceptable in our own limited understanding. But, you know, though Mary was greatly blessed and she was undoubtedly a godly woman, she still needed a savior. And so this is what, what floors me is, Going back to her original interaction with Gabriel, you know, Mary said, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. So contrary yeah. to this Roman Catholic teaching that Mary was sinless, Mary herself admitted that God was her savior and a sinless person doesn't need a savior. Right. So it is in the person of Jesus that really grace and truth and virtue are birth, are birth, the birth of Jesus are best <laughs> exemplified. And, and so it's, it's just a strange thing to me. It really seems like an adventure that's completely in missing the point. I don't know how we got there, but, but here's what I'm saying. This is because it makes me question. I think a reasonable Christian is to question, why are we venerating somebody like this? And in our veneration, are we committing idolatry? Because this is so far away from what God has commanded us. And not only that, the things which we are trying to venerate and ascribe to this idol are the very things which exist in Jesus Christ himself, who we ought to be worshiping directly. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just to put it in perspective, right. I, I think as, as good Protestants, right. Not, let's not even talk about reformed in general. Yeah. As good Protestants, we should be going to the Bible right. to ground all of our doctrine. Um, it's not enough. And we'll, we'll talk about some picadellos I have with some of my reformed peers here, but it's not enough to just say that the scripture permits us to believe something, right? And one of the things that drives me nuts about this particular topic is there are a lot of arguments from silence, right? Yes, that's but true. Just to put this in perspective, the word Mary appears 48 times in the English Standard Version. That's Old and New Testament. There are no there are no instances in the Old Testament, although you could probably take instances of the word Miriam and stuff like that. Sure. There are 750,439 words in the English Standard Version. So I'm not going to bother doing the percentages, but it's low, right? <laughs> the, the, and, and not even all of those references to Mary are referring to Mary, the, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Right. right? We, we have just as many, I think probably more references to Mary Magdalene. Magdalene or the yep. so-called other Mary in the New Testament than we do to Mary. Um, there is zero reflection in the apostolic writings of, of any thought or even consideration of Mary. And Mary does not appear anywhere in the New Testament, in the history of the New Testament, after the day of Pentecost, right? right? She drops off the scene entirely. And so when we come to the Bible, you know, the, the regulative principle, uh, the, I'm going to take a little side tangent here, but one of the things that happens in this debate, we'll just go to the perpetual virginity, right? It is true. Many of the reformers did not, did not lose their belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary. I'm not convinced by any of their arguments. Even Calvin, 
held to the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, the second Helvetic confession uses the term ever virgin. So at least on a strict reading that that confession includes the perpetual virginity, at least in a sort of tangential sense mm -hmm. uh, in that. I am not convinced by any of those arguments. And, and once in a while, when I have this discussion with someone online, they'll basically say like, well, the New Testament, the passages that are used to uh, to articulate that Mary had other children, uh, those are underdetermined, underdetermined. And so what that what that means when they're saying it is basically like, well, it could go either way. Like you can read those in the way you're reading it to say she had other children. But also there's these alternative readings that usually rely on like, well, there's no Aramaic word for cousin. So the Aramaic word for for the way to describe a cousin would be to call them a brother or a son. But then that gets translated like none of those really hold water because none of the New Testament was written in Aramaic. Right. Right. But the, the argument goes like, well, we're permitted to, to hold this idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin because the New Testament doesn't say we can't hold that view. The New Testament doesn't clearly say that she didn't ever do that. Well, the problem with that is that the regulative principle does not apply just to worship. And this is one of the things when right. we call it the regulative principle of worship, that really bothers me because it's, it's when we talk about the regulative principle of worship, what we're actually talking about is we're talking about a reformed principle applied to worship. Yeah, exactly. And so, so when we read the scripture, in order to believe that something is a theological truth, we are required to say, to be able to uh, see and understand and articulate and defend that it is both a good consequence, meaning that it, it makes sense, that it is theologically sound and that doesn't do damage to the faith, but also that it's a necessary consequence, mm -hmm. not that it's a possible consequence. Right? There's right. all sorts of really screwy theology you can come with as a possible consequence. And so it's often positioned as like, well, what does it matter? Like, what does it matter if, if Mary ever had sex with Joseph? Well, other than the fact that if you want to, you want to say she was sinless, like being married and never consummating the marriage actually is a sin, right? Paul says, don't do that. Right. Paul says that you should give each other, you should give your body to your spouse and that you right. shouldn't refrain from sexual relations except for a brief time for prayer. But then you, then you should come back together, right? So if you want to say Mary's sinless and you want to say that she's a perpetual virgin, right there, you just, it just doesn't make any sense. You can do all the special pleading you want, but it doesn't. But the, the problem and the main reason that this is an issue is that it has to do with how we formulate our theological formulas. Right. A reformed Christian, and yes, John Calvin fits into this description. I'm sorry, I love Calvin. He's not infallible. He, he, you know, he, he would be the first person to say it. I think he got it wrong. John Calvin basically argues, well, you know, they never says he doesn't. Like, and and he, he leans on the history of the church, that there's this early testimonies. I get it. Like, he makes an argument. But at the end of the day, he holds a theological position that is not justified by the scripture. Maybe it's not excluded by the scripture, but it's not justified and made necessary by the scripture. Mm -hmm. A reform, a thorough reformed principle of interpretation of scripture requires us not only to be able to coax something out of the text, but it requires us, if we're going to put any weight on the doctrine at all, it right. requires us to say that scripture drives me to this. I'm required to believe this because the scripture positively teaches it. The perpetual virginity of Mary, the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, you can make some arguments from the scriptures, especially if you can fill in some of the silences of the New Testament. You can make an argument for that. But it, it, it's not a reformed way of looking at the scriptures. 
Yeah. And I think what's interesting about Mary is that she, again, is the lightning rod where she draws people either to provide like her with the right amount of appropriate respect or complete worship. And that's the issue here is like, I think what we're saying is that she is being given worship that is undue her. I mean, any worship for that matter really is, is not appropriate. That's due to God and uh, his son, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so what I find interesting is that I think there are, there are people in their Christians that place like the appropriate amount of respect on Mary, like as a person who is involved in the redemptive narrative, but is not a redemptrix. And right. that is the key. So it's trying to understand what is appropriate to give her attention for. For instance, I remember hearing the story of a missionary couple who I know and respect very much. And uh, they were serving in the southern part of Africa, or I think actually the middle part of Africa. And it just so happened that at some point during their service, the this woman uh, threw her back out. She was in extremely uh, intense pain. And all she could do was lay in this uh, mud hut in which they lived in for days on end because she couldn't move. She's in such pain. And during this time, she was recounting how like in the evening hours, you know, like the rats and the mice would come and she could hear them. They'd run across her legs and there was really nothing she could do. She's such, in such pain. And for whatever reason, God brought to her the example of Mary in that moment of being a person who said, who was an example of submission to the will of God, who said like, let it be to me as the Lord has required. And so for her, that was a source of great strength. She wasn't worshiping Mary, but she was encouraged by her example to bear underneath the circumstances that God had placed her in. So for me, that's an example of being able to respect what God was doing through the life of Mary, while at the same time worshiping the Savior who was her son and who was the one who was in control of all things without confusing or conflating the two. And I think that is not necessarily the hard thing. It depends kind of, I think, on your, your theological upbringing and your propensity to understand the scriptures. But there's no doubt that what God has ordained for us in the scriptures is to worship his son and not his mother. And that we should not give her special authority or rights or privileges or blessings that are really due to God, the son, Jesus Christ. Right. And this is a thing that like you, I find very difficult to grasp from perspective. Part of me feels that some of what, what Calvin and others wrestled with, as we talked about before, is that their idea in bringing about, if we can call it they wouldn't say this, but like the reformation in their lifetime was to bring about some change from within while preserving the basic tenets of the Roman Catholic understanding of the scriptures. And so I think there was in many ways, I mean, they were choosing their battles. And so I think it was easy to say like, well, this is an argument for silence. So I have bigger fish to fry right now. I'm trying to go after and try to understand. And this is not one of those things, but it's, it's a great blessing with hindsight being 2020 for God to give us this perspective in the day in which we, we live to try to understand what is the proper perspective of all things, including where is the right place for Mary? in our understanding of theology and then in our practical outworkings of the Christian faith as we understand her role in it. Yeah. Yeah. So just, just to run through the list and give, give a little bit of um, ammo for our listeners. Um, if, if they run into this conversation at Christmas time, or they happen to be interacting with a Roman Catholic friend at work who, you know, is talking all about how important Mary is to Christmas. Um, the uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary is the only one that really has any sort of biblical grounding whatsoever. So as far as as far as the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Mary, 
you can just dismiss those out of hand. Yeah, super as, weird. As totally invented extra biblical uh, theology, right? right? Now, from an apologetic standpoint, that's not going to help you with your Roman Catholic friend, right? right? They, they don't care that it's extra biblical. They know it's extra biblical. Um, that you know, they wouldn't try to say in any strict sense. Um, yeah, well, this, the Bible teaches this. They might say the Bible doesn't forbid it. They might use some allegorical interpretation, particularly about the new Eve, right? There's this parallel. And I would encourage yes. you to go listen to the Re Reformanda Initiative episode because they draw this out. There's a lot of parallels between, you know, if if Adam, if Jesus is the, ne the new Adam, then who's the new Eve? Well, Mary, of course. And so all of that carries with it this eschatological baggage that, that has no business, uh, keep, you know, what was it? Keep your keep your Oreos out of my whatever. Like there was this old marketing campaign <laughs> and, and then it kind of turned into keep your sanctification out of my justification. Well, keep your extra biblical nonsense out of my theology of Mary. Right. Yeah. So, so, so those two things, you can kind of just dismiss them out of hand, listen politely, you know, explain like, well, I believe that we need to derive our scripture, our, our doctrine from the scriptures. So even the Roman Catholic scriptures, even the extra books that they've added to their canon don't really have anything to do with this. Right. The one that does have a little bit of sticking point is the perpetual virginity of Mary. So I want to just talk real quickly about the main arguments people make. So there, there are two kind of passages that, they, that they'll point to. There's the passage where it says uh, that Mary, Joseph did not know Mary until um, the conception, until after Jesus was born. Right. And so one of the things that we have to be careful of, and I think is important as Protestants who want to have these good polemical discussions, is not overextending our argument and also not making, making bad arguments out of our ignorance. And so the word that gets translated as until in Greek, it actually does not necessarily mean, you know, we think of until um, and, and we think that it means there's one state of affairs until a certain point, and then, the, then there's a different state of affairs after that. In English, that's usually the connotation of that word, right? I, um, I was really ready for Christmas until Jesse got here, and then now I'm excited because Christmas is here, right? I, I, was, I was really hungry until I got to the store, and then I'm, I'm not hungry anymore with the you know, implied statement that, well, I ate something. In Greek, that can actually go both ways. So there are some passages that clearly say, you know, this this particular thing is the case until such and such a point. And then we know from the context that that state of affairs continues after that. And, right. and that word is really more talking about what happens at a point in time than it is about the state of affairs on either time. There are also examples where it's used in that more traditional kind of English sense. Such and such a thing happens until a certain point in time. And then, then the state of affairs changes. Right. We should not rest our primary apologetics or polemics against the perpetual virginity on this verse, because Roman Catholic apologists are going to school you on the Greek on this. Unless you really know your Greek, <laughs> you're going to, and then you lose confidence. If there's other right. people observing, if you're if you're debating in a Facebook group, you now have lost credibility. So so be careful on that. And it actually is a good tactic to acknowledge that before they bring it up. Hey, you know, I know most people when they have this argument with you, they're going to bring up this Greek word aos. Well, I know that that's not, I know that that's not what the word means. You can say, I think when you look at the the totality, that it, it lends itself to thinking that this does actually imply that the state of affairs changed when you look at the rest of the scripture. But I don't think that this passage is enough for that. But instead, we should look at the passages that talk about Jesus's siblings, 
right? It very right. clearly says Jesus has siblings. It's very clearly when, when it says Mary and her and Jesus's brothers came to the temple right. to, to claim Jesus, it's not presenting a situation where it's like Mary and then these other cousins that come to get him. It's, it's presenting this picture that the family that is closest to him, his brothers, his mother, they're the ones coming to get him. That's part of the point of the text is that his, his closest family didn't believe in him. And then the contrast he makes is, well, who's my mother and brother? Rather than saying like, well, who is, who's my mother and these auxiliary people I'm attached to, like sort of secondhand hand relations, he's saying like the closest relationships that I have are right. with these people, the people yep. who confess the word of God. Well, that, that comparison doesn't make any sense if you have Mary and then some cousins, right? Or, or stepbrothers, basically. Right. And then the next step that we go to is now sort of that third ring of, of stuff. Right. We go to the fact, like I mentioned earlier, like perpetual virginity and and sinlessness don't work because there's a command in the scriptures to grant your husband his his uh, marital rights. And he's to do the same for you. Right. I, I don't want anyone to hear me saying like that, thinking I'm like a really sexist guy. Like there's a mutuality to that command. Spouses mm -hmm. are not to deprive their uh, spouses of the benefit of sexual relations in marriage, except for a very specific reason for a very defined period of time. And then there's a command to come back together. So, so that's another useful thing. And the final argument that I often hear is that on the cross, when Jesus is dying and he, uh, he looks to the beloved apostle who, who I would say is, is the apostle John, he looks to John and he basically commits Mary into John's care. And right. so the argument goes, well, why would he give his mother to be cared for to these other people if, uh, you know, if he has brothers? Well, his brothers weren't there, right? So he, could, he couldn't commend them. Um, his brothers, at least at this point, were not believers. So it's another statement of the fact that uh, fellow Christians have a closer relation to each other than they do even to blood relatives. Right. So all of these arguments are, are these sort of tangential arguments that really represent just grasping at straws, right? I don't think actually un until Protestants started coming at the Roman Catholics going, can you prove this in scripture? What are you doing? I don't think that any of them were making biblical arguments to try to justify the perpetual right. virginity of Mary. It just wasn't right. a thing. It wasn't until they were saying like, man, we really probably figure out, probably should figure out some biblical arguments if we want to create, you know, <laughs> convince these crazy Protestants. Um, it wasn't until that point that they started pulling at these straws. Right. I agree with that. I, I was going to say that I think most of this stems from the fact that the worldview among Roman Catholics, and again, some generally, is that Mary herself was high and lifted up. There's right. this right sense that she has a special place. And again, this story of redemption, this grand arc and this narrative that God is constructing. But what happened was once you basically posit that Mary has this almost otherworldly, and that's the way I would describe it, like place in the story, then you have to fill in all the back details to make sure you can support that view. And so I think that's mostly what happens with these other dogmas. Right. It's convenient that in the case of the virginity that you can try to support that argument from silence. That's like more convenient than the other ones that you just quoted. But for me, it's more a matter of we've given Mary this very high lifted up place. We want to basically substantiate that she's somehow holy. Like she's right. 
equally holy with God, or maybe to like a slightly lesser extent, but not really all that different. And so in order to do that, then we've got to purge her behavior from all these other human accoutrements, which is a normal part of being a mother or just being a woman. And so by virtue of that fact, we make these dogmas, and then we try to go deep into the scriptures and see if we can somehow make an argument to support those. So this is one of those places where like some other Roman Catholic doctrines, I see that really history in the church itself has tried to inform the scriptures rather than the other way around. And I still see that happening because again, I think in in some places, even Protestants are unwittingly falling prey to this because they want to honor Mary. But there's a difference between, I think we're something that's made to feel guilty where we can either honorate her, honor equals veneration. And anything less than that is like, well, you're disrespecting the fact that God used this woman who did uh, he did miraculous things through this woman, and here is a very young woman who is willing to basically yield to the will of God in her life in ways that relationally and otherwise were very material. And we, I think we all concede to that point. That is all true. And yet at the same time, even she herself says, I am the one in need of a savior. And I look to this one whom I will bear as the one who is the Prince of Peace, the Almighty Father, the Mighty God. He himself is the one who I'm not worthy of. I am not worthy to be compared to him. And I think we see that manifest not only in just what she says, but in her behavior in the scriptures as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one last thought, and and I I think that this is, in my mind, this is kind of the linchpin of the reason we should just ignore Mariology in terms of of not being concerned with it being um, not being true. Right. Is when you look at the scripture. Right. And this is the last place that Roman Catholics usually go to kind of justify their Mary worship is they go to Luke chapter one. Right. right. And they, they, they go to where the angel says to Mary, hail, full of grace. And one of the things that that drives me the most nuts about that is what they're doing is they're taking the scripture and they're actually articulating exactly the opposite of what that is intended to communicate. So there are there are three other places by my count where similar language appears, this full of grace language. We have John 1.14, where it says that the son is full of grace and truth. We have Acts 6.8, which says Stephen is full of grace and power. And then we have um, a few other spots that use similar language. One of the things um, that, you know, I think it's useful for all Christians on, on whatever level they can to learn a little bit of Greek is understanding the difference between a passive verb and an active verb, right? right. A passive verb is, is there when a, something is done to you, right? Jesse uh, was hit by a car. That's a terrible example. I don't know why Great, that went to Thanks. That. Appreciate that. Um, Jesse was given a gift at Christmas time, oh, at midwinter, no season time, right? The fact that this is an action that was done to Jesse, it, it doesn't totally remove his agency, but the emphasis of the verb is, is that Jesse isn't the one doing it, right? If I say Jesse recorded himself, then that, that Jesse did that. If I right. say Jesse was recorded, that's a totally different feeling to the verb. Mm-hmm. When the Bible says that Mary was full of grace, it's a passive verb, right? It's a, it's a passive construct. And yeah. so the, the text is, it's a lot of times people call it the divine passive. When you see this passive verb in scripture that doesn't have a clear, uh, clear subject, um, it's basically saying Mary was showed grace. She was full of grace because grace was given to her. Yes, exactly. And, and, and what the Roman Catholic does is they say, well, Mary's full of grace because of how special she was. Right, exactly. And and, and this is, you know, James White, I, I don't love James White as a public figure, but one of the things that I learned from him is that inconsistency is a sign of a failed argument. 
the same people who say that Mary has this special, unique relationship and role because she's full of grace, they'll point to John 1, 14 and say, see, look, Jesus was full of grace. They never point to Acts and say, Stephen was full of grace. Right. They never point to Acts and go, see, I mean, Stephen, Stephen was, wasn't immaculately conceived. Stephen wasn't, I mean, I guess we don't know, but he wasn't perpetually a virgin kind of by like fiat. And he wasn't. He wasn't bodily assumed into heaven. So like they don't grant that special role to him. And, mm-hmm. and this is where I want to go with this is when you look at the language uh, about Jesus, it does, it's not even a verb. It's, it's the very nature of Jesus Christ is that he's full of grace and truth. Right. Like Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. Jesus is grace and truth itself where Mary is shown favor. She is full of grace. You could say that she was filled with grace to even right. emphasize that passiveness more. By and it actually is closer to the language used of Noah just before the flood, yes. the flood yep. where it says he exactly. found favor with the Lord. So, so to kind of wrap it all up, to sort of go back to this question, like how do we properly relate to Mary? Well, the way we properly relate to Mary as, as Christians is in the same way we relate to any of the Old Testament or New Testament figures. We relate to her in exactly in the same way that we do to anyone else who's held up in the scriptures as an example of the faith, mm-hmm. who also is a fallible, sinful human who screwed right. up at times, right? Mary was there when her, bro- when her sons came because they thought Jesus had lost his mind and they wanted to stop his ministry, right? right? She was there, but doesn't say all that much about how, what her role is, but she was there. Right. She probably wasn't dragged along kicking and screaming. She was there, presumably voluntarily. So we have to look at Mary. We should see her. I think I think the scripture does hold her up as an example of faith. Mm-hmm. She's contrasted directly with um, Zechariah. Right. Who yep. who asks a very similar question when he's told that by a lot, he's going to his wife's going to become pregnant, even though biologically it's it's not an option anymore. He asks a very similar question that's rooted in doubt. Mary's question is clearly not rooted in doubt. Right. Um, Zechariah is punished. He's given, he, the sign he receives is a judgment on his life for nine months. He can't talk. Uh, this text seems to indicate he can't hear. Uh, Mary is, you know, when this, the text says, Mary asks for a sign, how shall I know this will be? The angel's response is, Mary, uh, your, your cousin Elizabeth is six months with child. Right. What does Mary do? The first thing she does is goes and sees the sign. Right. She right. goes to see the sign, not because she's doubting it, but because she wants to see it. Right. So, so Mary is this figure in scripture in the very brief accounts we have, right. The fact that she's at Pentecost, right. She, she starts out as a believer in Jesus Christ. We don't know whether she had her doubts. I'm sure she had doubts. Everybody has doubts, you know, besides Jesus never had doubts, but everybody has doubts, but she seems to be a believer the whole time. The primary narratives in the scriptures uh, in Luke that tell us about the birth are probably firsthand testimonies from Mary given directly to Luke. She's present at Pentecost. Presumably, she lives the rest of her life in Jerusalem with the apostles, probably just quietly ministering, quietly worshiping, quietly serving the church. Um, That's what we should see as the example, not as this uh, aggrandized larger than life figure to kind of go back to what we talked about with Bob Inc. Like she was just a person. Mm-hmm. She, she had a, a, a terrifying experience, to be honest. I mean, it's, I can't imagine how hard it would have been to be an unwed mother in the first century. But on top of that, now all of a sudden your, your own, your own betrothed husband has to now believe you that you didn't, you weren't unfaithful to him. Right. Like the, that's a hard experience. Um, you know, um, what's the name, the, the guy in the temple, what's his name, who does the 
now dismiss your servant in peace. We just read this this morning, I should know. But he says, like, a sword will pierce your own side. Yes, so Mary, yeah. Mary is an example of suffering, an example right. of perseverance, an example of faith. She's an example of someone who was chosen for a very particular and difficult role in redemptive history, um, passively chosen, but chosen nonetheless. And mm -hmm. rather than resist that or fight it, she does. She accepts it willingly. Um, yeah. And I think that's where we look at it. We look at her as an example of the faith, not as someone to be venerated or worshipped. Yeah, I agree. I wish time didn't elude us right now because there, there's so much more that we could say like legitimately about how there's so much as Protestants where we don't need to, we can appreciate Mary without trying to appropriate in some kind of guilt the way that the Roman Catholics view her. And there's so much to be said for her as in some ways like the last matriarch of Israel. There's right. so much about her as being part of this skull crushing process that she she is connected to this motif of God's people crushing the skulls of their enemies. Right. And yet she's not the one doing the crushing. And to, to kind of just put like a, maybe an exclamation point, although I hate that phrase, but just to put like an exclamation point on what you said, <laughs> This idea, one of the, when the, I'd say like the typologies or the tropes that we see in the scriptures is Mary is kind of this ark of the Lord that she's like yeah. participating in and it culminates in this typology of the Old Testament. And that goes back to as far as, like you said, I, I love that you brought this up, like Noah, where God's seed is carried in the ark through the floodwaters. And it includes Moses who describes his own reed basket in Exodus 3 using the same terminology as Noah's right. ark in Genesis 6. And then in the Old Testament, it climaxes in David bringing that Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and Solomon, of course, bringing it into the temple. And then this reminds us of exactly what you said. And I love this, where when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and John the Baptist like leaps, literally leaps in her womb because he recognizes who is in the womb of Mary. The same word is the, the linguistic phrasing there is the same as when David dances before the ark of the Lord and he leaps in joy to represent what God is doing and his representation of the ark there. All of this continuity in the scriptures. And so there's plenty for us to respect Mary without saying she's the object of preaching and worship. That's where I think we draw the line right. very starkly. And yet we can still appreciate that God used her and may use us in ordinary and normal means in the same way he uses his mother in a profound way. And yet she herself acknowledges that she's looking forward to the day of her savior. So that old question, like Mary, did you know? Yes. For the most part, yes. And she was looking forward though. She didn't understand completely. And, and I think this gets to either, I think you said this while we were recording or maybe beforehand that there are so many that if you said like Mary would be, uh, forgive the phrase, like rolling over in her grave to know the way in which she's being represented right now. Because I think even she herself, I know actually, even here she herself, as we understand the scriptures would say, do not look to me, look to my savior. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a question about David though. Is it yeah. the same word that's used when it says he can leap over a wall? <laughs> I don't know. Your, just, your knowledge Just like of... these themes come, come in and out in the scripture, they just, yeah. there's this continuity throughout the Reformed Brotherhood. It's, it's pretty amazing. There, there is a continuity. <laughs> Again, I wish that was like the, through my, with my God, I can run through a wall. Like, I feel like that was, yeah. uh, I want to say like, Holy Spirit, like father, son, like, come on, this seems like a missed opportunity, but that's probably because he was like, that's <laughs> even God's like, that's ridiculous. Like yeah. it's, <laughs> the intent here is to leap over the wall. I'm not Kool-Aid manning this. Yeah, if you run through a wall, you're doing something wrong. The <laughs> wall is the, if the wall is supposed to prevent people from running through it. That's literally <laughs> what a wall is for. That's pretty good, actually. So what you're saying is like by allowing the running through, 
that actually undermines the whole purpose of the wall to begin with, which is why it's better to say it actually more powerful to show that you can leap over it while preserving Correct. its purpose. And yeah. yet at the same time, defying what it was trying to do. Yeah. I mean, even Superman doesn't run through tall buildings in a single bound. He leaps over them in a single bound. Well, this is so. like unnecessarily destructive for Superman. I don't know. Have you seen Superman? He destroys no. cities all the time with his fights. Oh, really? Anyways, no. That's a whole different. That's a no. whole different nerd here's, podcast. Here's my thing. We got you brought this up, and now I've got to address it. At least throw it out there for people. Uh, Jen, my wife, has watched through like most of the Marvel stuff. I was I was there for parts of it. I was like, okay, I can get behind some of this. But there is a movie where apparently, like, uh, Superman battles Batman, and it yeah. it just seems. Like at that point I was like, I don't understand anything anymore. Why are they fighting each other? Uh, cause apparently Batman who's supposed to be the (laughs) the smartest super detective in the world is tricked by like the super simplest, easiest ruse. Someone suggested once that Superman might be evil and he was like, I have to stop him. (laughs) If there's even a 90, if there's even a 10% chance, I have to act as though it's a hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's silly. wait, is that an actual line from the movie? Yeah, yeah, which is funny because you and I have said the same thing about coronavirus, but yeah, no, there's a there's a That's line there where he's statistics. like, if there's even a if there's even a ten percent chance that he's gonna go bad, then I have to treat it as an absolute certainty. And and Batman felt like he was equally matched with Superman No, he had to make this who... whole like armor. He basically turned himself into Iron Man. He made like this armor suit. <laughs> He this laced so the iron great. suit with kryptonite. He created this these like so great. grenades. I knew this is going to be complicated. And ultimately, I don't care if this is a spoiler because it's a terrible movie. Ultimately, he's like ready to kill Batman or Batman's ready to kill Superman with this like yeah. kryptonite spear. And Superman's name is Martha and Martha has been kidnapped. And so he says, you have to save Martha. Like he's just trying to like say like, please save my mom. And, and Batman's like, why did you say Martha? It's because his name was Martha. And so then they realized that they're actually BFFs because both their moms were named Martha. That's really, that's literally how Batman realizes that Superman's not the bad guy because he's like, why did you say Martha? Because their mothers share the same name. Because their mothers share the same name, yeah. Dang. Yeah. It's not even that uncommon of a name. (laughs) That's great. So here's the way I want to try to pull up. It's not like he was like, why did you say Shaniqua? Here's. He probably would be like, why did you say Shaniqua? <laughs> I mean, that would be more shocking. It was like some really like, uh, unco- like, why did you say Dorcas? Like it was some other yeah. like more uncommon name. So here's how I want to pull up on this is I think this just shows that like you look at like a, a story to franchise as like the, is that part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? No, is that- no. Oh, you have dang. a long way to go. If you I thought I was like, question. see, I shouldn't have said that. I thought I was like, be trying. I was going to sound like wicked smart. Like I was bringing it in. Like I knew what I was talking about. Okay. So even, so that there's a storyline there. And even as we try to create some kind of consistent storyline, it's almost impossible, right? Like even in that you just, there's all kinds of holes. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's all over the place. It seems unrealistic. And yet we go to the scriptures written over this profound period of time. We find this continuity of it being about Jesus Christ on every single page. And here we come to like this grand birth narrative and we find that it's logically and completely coherent and consistent. Yeah. And so we see in this, like just the marvel of God and his working in our lives and then his great grace and mercy to disclose it in written form to us. Yeah. It's such a beautiful thing. And so let's give Mary her due, but just her due. 
and, and nothing more than that. Because in point of fact, that's exactly what she would want because she is the one who had an intimate relationship with her Lord and Savior and at the same time recognized that it was her Lord and Savior. Right. And so we have to do the same thing. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that does about does about wrap it does up. About, Just it does about? Just about wraps it up. So, it uh, you know, we won't, we won't, you won't hear from us again until after midwinter, no reason. That's so true. until next time, Reformed Brotherhood listeners, Merry Christmas, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.